One of the most important teachings that the Buddha gave is a very short statement about the nature of the mind. He said that the nature of the mind is radiant and pure, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. The nature of the mind is radiant and pure, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. Radiant here does not mean the great white light that Sharon was hoping for. <coughs> Rather, it means something in a way more ordinary, but also more mysterious. Radiant means the cognizing power of mind. That is the quality or the power of the mind to know. Sometimes when we either hear or read about radiance or luminosity, it refers to this knowing or cognizing faculty. The mind is radiant and pure. Purity means that it has quality like space. It's unobstructed. There's a, a little phrase in the Zen teachings of Huang Po, which describes it very aptly. He calls this purity of mind or the essential stainless purity. Essential stainless beauty, excuse me. Essential stainless beauty. That's the nature of the mind, radiant and pure. This stainless faculty of knowing, stainless beauty of it. The mind is radiant and pure. It's obscured by visiting defilements. Well, this is an important piece of the teaching, too, because what the Buddha is saying is that all the obstructing forces of the mind are visitors. They're not inherent to the nature of mind. Rather, they arise when certain conditions are present. And it's precisely because they're visiting, because they arise only when the conditions are present, that we actually can learn to recognize and abide in the natural purity of awareness. Five states are singled out, five mental states are singled out as hindrances. Now they're singled out because each of these five states is very deeply habituated, very deeply conditioned in our minds. And as we go through them, or at least some of them, uh, they'll be very familiar. That's why they're singled out, because they're so common in our experience, so seductive. They're called hindrances because they hinder our ability to develop concentration, to develop steadiness of mind. They hinder our ability to recognize the stainless beauty. 
to recognize the radiance and purity of mind. Tonight I'm going to talk about the hindrances in reverse order because as Sharon pointed out to me, (laughs) when I start with desire, which is usually the first, I usually don't get past desire (laughs) because I love it so much (laughs) and find a lot to say about it. (laughs) So we'll see if we get to it by the end. So starting, starting backwards, <laughs> the last shall be first, which is doubt. Doubt is a very difficult, <coughs> very difficult mind state. It's the mind state of perplexity, of confusion. It's like we're at a crossroads and we don't know which way to go. And we're so in in this constant indecision. Is this the right way? Is that the right way? And because of doubt, because of this perplexity and confusion, we don't go anyplace. We actually come to a standstill. We don't even go forward allowing us to learn from our mistakes. Doubt keeps us paralyzed. It keeps us immovable. In meditation practice, doubt takes some very particular forms, and you might find some of them familiar. A very common form of doubt is self-doubt. You know, when the thoughts start coming, I can't do this. It's too hard. Maybe it'll work better next time. You know, whatever particular tapes run through the mind. Or it might be doubts about the practice. It certainly looks weird. (laughs) You know, kind of people with their eyes downcast and no eye contact and moving very slowly. It could be the back ward of (laughs) some hospital. And so it's not unusual for doubts to start arising. What is the point of this? Sitting here, watching my breath, watching, lifting, moving, placing. Then we start to have doubts about the, the usefulness of what we're doing. Doubts about the teachers. Who are these guys anyway? <laughs> you know, where did they come from? We need to learn how to recognize these doubts as they arise. Because if we don't, the power of this hindrance is that it actually keeps us from doing the practice. It becomes a self-fulfilling mind state. Because in fact, when we're lost in doubt, it is useless. We're not doing anything. We're just going back and forth, spinning in our minds. It doesn't allow us to actually settle back and for a period of time, just to enter into it fully. So that we can experiment and see for ourselves is this worthwhile, is it not? What is its value? What is its value for me in my life? The only way we can know is if we do it. If we make the experiment. But for as long as we're lost in doubt, it doesn't allow us to do that. And that's why it's such a destructive mind state if it's not seen. 
the great seduction of doubt is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. You know, we hear these voices in the mind and it's this very wise sounding voice, very rational voice. Yeah, you know, this practice is a little weird. (laughs) And we try to figure it out intellectually. Something which is beyond the power of the intellect to really fully understand. It would be like trying to understand the experience of music through reading a book. It can only take us so far. We might get some understanding, some knowledge of music, but we will not have the taste of it. We will not really know what that experience is. Likewise, we cannot figure this out, figure out what the taste of meditation is through thinking. Thinking can only take us so far. So we need to be willing to drop down from that level of indecision, from that level of doubting. So what to do when it comes? Because it does come from time to time, and in different people it's either you know, very strong or maybe mild. What do we do when the doubting mind comes? And actually, there's an interesting expression in English which reveals the quality of the mind state. Now, the common expression is plagued by doubt. And it is a plague. And that's what it feels like when we're consumed by it. The first thing we need to do is to recognize those thoughts as doubting thoughts when they arise. So our recognition of what's actually happening in our minds is clear. If we can catch the doubting tape early, we see it just as it arrives. Oh, I can't do this. This is too hard. Whatever form our own particular doubting tape arises in, we see it clearly. We can have the insight very immediate, very direct. Yes, this is just another thought, just like every other thought. It's empty. It's insubstantial. It has no power except for the power that we give it. So if we see this clearly enough right at the beginning, we're free. We're we're free from the power of this particular hindrance. You might make the mental note when when you recognize and see the doubt doubting tape, doubting tape. See that it's just this tape loop in the mind. That's the first step and the most effective one. Secondly, notice how the process of doubt works. Notice that when we're lost in this tape, it is actually taking us away from the ability to be with our direct experience of things. When we're lost in these thoughts, we're not connected to the breath, we're not connected to the body, we're not connected to our experience. And so notice that about the power of doubt, because that will give you motivation to actually become free of it. And what you will notice from that is as soon as you come back again, very close to your experience, you're just with the breath, you're just in a moment of hearing or in a movement. In that moment of just being with the breath, is there any confusion? Is there any doubt? No. Because the nature of the experience is so clear, so immediate, so vivid to us. 
just the feeling of the breath, just the sound. So reconnecting again very closely, very immediately, again brings us out of that cloud, that plague of mind. Sometimes some intellectual clarification about the doubts that we have can also be helpful. And so in that respect, it can be useful to ask questions. You know, if there's something particularly puzzling you know, or doubtful for you. Because the whole of the Buddhist teachings, uh, it's very pragmatic. It's not about some abstract theory. You know, and it's not that there's some uh, ritual or dogma that we need to accept. It's all about how the mind creates suffering and coming to the end of it. That's all. And so there's a great common sense quality to the Dharma. It's not some esoteric knowledge. And so doubts very often, when they're voiced, you know, if they're real questions about one's experience, very often there are very simple responses, very simple answers. Because it all comes out of experience, not out of theory. When I first went to India to practice, and I mentioned this in the talk in Santa Fe, uh, the first time I met my teacher, Manindra, he said something which completely hooked me in its pragmatism. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. (laughs) That was all. And it was so obvious. How else can we understand our minds? Really understand them deeply, for ourselves. If we want to understand something, anything, we really have to look, observe, examine, investigate. And so, to fall back on this very common sense attitude about the Dharma, about our practice, really helps to dispel this speculative doubt that just keeps us spinning. Okay, this is the first, the first of the last hindrance, the doubt in mind. Very important to get a handle on this because if we don't, it really becomes a very uh, major roadblock in our practice. The second of the hindrances, one that's very common, is the feeling of restlessness and agitation and worry. Now, it's just the the mind state or the body, the mind-body, that actually has an imbalance of energy and concentration when we have too much energy and not enough steadiness, not enough one-pointedness, what happens is that the surplus of energy makes us restless. And the restlessness can take different forms. Sometimes there's the feeling in the body that we just want to jump out of our skin. You know, it's just so intense, this energetic restlessness. This happened to me, it's happened periodically, I'm very familiar with this state. Once, just after I began teaching, uh, 
was leading a retreat uh, in Hawaii, I think it was with Sharon. Uh, and I was sitting up front and I had this attack of restlessness. And here I was trying to model something or other. <laughs> and it was all I could do to kind of hold myself in place. I wanted to jump up screaming. <laughs> and even years later, when I was practicing in Burma, you know, doing intensive practice, uh, there were times I went through one period where almost every day at the same hour, you know, something just happened in my energy rhythms, and I'd be filled with this intense uh, need just to move my body. So it can be very strong, this feeling. Sometimes the body is relatively still, but it's the mind which is restless, the mind which is agitated or worried. You know, we can't settle down. The mind's just jumping from one thing to another. There's a phenomenon conditioned by restlessness which is well worth knowing about. It's a meditative phenomenon, particularly on retreats. And it's a state called yogi mind. And yogi mind is very well documented. <laughs> what happens in yogi mind is that there's a kind of restlessness, you know, a scatteredness in the mind, and the mind latches on to a thought obsessively. Out of all proportion, either to its um, importance or even to its truth, I and mean, we can start obsessing about something that is completely false. I'll give you a few examples of yogi mind because uh, it can save you a lot of distress if you recognize it early. At one retreat, there was a yogi who got horribly disturbed by the planes flying overhead. <laughs> And his mind just started obsessing about the noise of these planes. And so he spoke to the manager. He wanted to write a letter to United Airlines <laughs> to change the flight patterns <laughs> so his practice wouldn't be disturbed. Now, this is really happened. You know, it's just the mind loses all sense of proportion. I had a very powerful experience of yoga mind. I was doing a self-retreat at IMS in Barry, sitting for about a month. My mind was getting very quiet. But then I started hearing voices through the radiator. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm hearing the sounds of the radiator, and I'm hearing whole conversations going and my room was all the way down at the end of a hall, quite a way, uh, quite a distance from the kitchen. But somehow, my mind latched onto this idea that people were speaking in the kitchen and coming up through the pots. And I was fantasizing the most. I didn't know that I was fantasizing at the time. I thought two friends the husband murdered the wife. And, <laughs> and I'm sitting there believing this and believing that it's all coming through the pipes. 
I actually left the silence of my retreat. I needed to go down and check this out. <laughs> That's how real it was. <laughs> so the mind has this ability in the silence of a retreat as a certain kind of restlessness. Or, um, where we just lose our sense of proportion uh, about what's happening, about the thoughts in our mind. Uh, very helpful. When you feel like you're starting to obsess about something, uh, give it the yo- give it the note yogi mind, you know, just to remind yourself. Yeah, this is this is just a meditative phenomenon. It's not really that important. So when either yogi mind or just more ordinary kinds of restlessness arise, we need to learn how to recognize it quickly and clearly so that we don't get caught up in it. We need to recognize that there's too much energy and not enough concentration. So how do we handle that? How do we balance that out a little bit? There are different ways. One way I call riding the bucking bronco method. Because the mind's restless, it's not staying on anything. So then it's that fierce determination to stay with the breath. It's like, not that I've ever ridden a bucking bronco. In fact, I've hardly been on a horse. But from looking at people, watching people do it, it really feels like they're holding on to dear life. Okay, can we be with the breath in that way? Just with a, a lot of determination. Just one breath at a time, really fixing the attention. Or the same thing with a step, really feeling it from <coughs> beginning to end. Sometimes that helps to just empower the one-pointedness you know, so that it gets more in balance with the energy and things settle out. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes <coughs> the energy is just too strong, and when we do that, we find that we're just in this unbearable struggle. and It's just making us even more res- restless. So then we have to try an opposite tack, which one might call the inner Wyoming method, or maybe the inner New Mexico method, of just big sky. You know, we make our minds as big as the New Mexico sky. And we can do that by opening the eyes, you can do it by listening to sound. You know, so you make the mind big enough to contain, to hold all of the energy that's swirling about. And so if you become the sky rather than identified with the restless energy, then it creates the space for the energy to settle by itself. Do you want to play? You know, you need to experiment and see which of these methods at any particular time will be helpful. So there's doubt as a hindrance which obscures the mind, obscures the natural radiance and purity. There's restlessness, which does the same thing. The third of the hindrances, which is very common, especially at the beginning of a retreat, although it has a deeper and more subtle meaning as well, is something which in the Buddhist jargon is called sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor means sleepiness, drowsiness, dullness of mind. It was really wonderful. Once I was reading this book of uh, kind of a natural history book, 
And I happened to open the page where it was describing the three-toed sloth. <laughs> and the description of this animal is amazing. It kind of just hangs by its, by its foot on a branch. And it's so slothful that, this is what it said in the book, you could fire a gun right next to its ear and it wouldn't even turn its head. <laughs> and once every long time, maybe I forget what it is exactly, once a year or six months or whatever, once in a very long time it kind of makes its way down the tree, eats a little bit, mates, and then goes back up and just hangs. <laughs> So I don't know which came first, the name of the animal or the name of the mind state. <laughs> but that's quite reflective, you know, of the quality of mind when it's filled with sloth and torpor. It's very heavy, very dull, not much energy. When sloth and torpor is present, what happens it doesn't allow us to call on or to connect with the energy which we actually have. It's not that we're lacking in energy, it's that the sloth, the torpor, somehow is covering it or making it inaccessible. The real problem of this hindrance is not kind of the periodic bouts of sleepiness that you might feel, particularly at the beginning of a retreat. That's quite normal, and usually by the third or fourth, fifth day, it really diminishes quite significantly. And so that's, that's really a very minor aspect. The more profound meaning of sloth and torpor is the very deep pattern that we have of withdrawing from difficulty that's really what sloth and torpor is doing. When we, when we come up against a difficulty, against a challenge, when these factors are present in the mind, instead of rising to meet the challenge, to engage in it, to be active with it, when sloth and torpor is there, we just pull back. We don't want to deal with it. And so that becomes a very significant life pattern which carries over into meditation as well. When sloth and torpor is present in that way, that, that withdrawing, retreating from all difficulties, it really takes the joy out of the practice. <coughs> and it takes, <coughs> excuse me, takes the joy out of our lives. You know, because we do face difficulties and we do face challenges. And if this, these qualities are very strongly uh, embedded, we're just always pulling back, we're always retreating. One of the particular characteristics of sloth and torpor is that it absolutely hates energetic people. <laughs> and I had this experience very strongly. I was on a retreat with Upandita in Australia. And I was in one room, and there was kind of a walking space in the middle, and then a room on the opposite side. And in this other room was quite a good friend of mine who was a very diligent yogi. You know, it's like no matter how late I went to sleep, he'd still be up. And how er however early I got up in the morning, there he'd be. I hated him. <laughs> yeah, and I had all these reactions to him. I had all these judgments about myself, you know, about what a bad yogi I was and all that. 
But after some time, I began to realize that all of that reaction in the mind, it was the impersonal manifestation of sloth and torpor. It was sloth and torpor that hated the energy. It wasn't me hating him. And when I saw that, and realized, so, yeah, this is how these, these states of mind function, I began to lighten up a bit and actually saw the humor in the whole situation. And even more importantly, or maybe as a result of that, uh, seeing seeing this friend inspired me. You know, seeing the quality of his energy. Oh yeah, well, maybe I can do that also. Uh, so we have to really see all the way sloth and torpor are conditioning uh, our responses to other people, to challenges in our life. There's a story, I don't know whether, uh, I can't remember whether a friend told me this and it was something they actually did or it was a story they heard. But it's very uh, to the point here. They had come across uh, a cocoon, you know, in which, I don't know the exact process, but you know, that a butterfly comes out of. Uh, And so this friend thought that they would, or they read the story, would sort of help the butterfly along by, you know, (laughs) unraveling the cocoon and of course didn't realize that the butterfly needed to fight against the cocoon to actually strengthen its wings enough so that it could fly when it comes out and it's just a very apt story for our understanding of how we relate to difficulties and challenges both in our practice and in our life now sloth and torpor is strong it's like looking for the easy way, retreating from it, not wanting to deal with the difficulty. But if we have a real understanding, we see, yeah, it's precisely those difficulties, when we're at the edge, that strengthens us. That's actually what gives the meditation power in our lives. The problem is that sloth and torpor also comes masquerading in disguise. Just like doubt can come masquerading as wisdom, (coughs) sloth and torpor comes masquerading as compassion. And so really have to be on the case. Oh, I think I'll take care of myself. You know, I really need a little rest. (laughs) Let me lie down. You know, it's really good for me. Well, you know, it comes to the late night sitting. Well, I've really put enough hard day of practice. You know, this just feels like it's a bit too much. I'll take care of myself. And it's just that voice. Now there are times, I don't want to dismiss out of hand the voice that is looking to take care of ourselves in appropriate ways. But that's rare. There are situations when that arises. But very often in a meditation retreat, it's more the voice of sloth and torpor sounding like compassion. And so at least question it. You know, and when that voice starts to arise in the mind, when you feel like you're up against the difficulty and you feel yourself pulling back from it, just take a look. Take, take an honest look. Do I really need to pull back? And as I say, sometimes it is appropriate. Or is it just not engaging, not calling up the energy necessary to be at that edge? This is a very important place in practice, especially in the West, 
because we tend to make our Dharma practice quite comfortable. You know, and it's good to push that edge a little bit. Practice at some of the monasteries in Asia, conditions are really hard and really difficult. And one would think the difficulties actually are a hindrance to the practice. And yet people who go and practice there, it's strengthening for the practice. And so just to become aware of that and play, you know, play the edge a bit. So how do we deal with sloth and torpor? When we feel this drowsiness, this dullness, this heaviness, this sleepiness, how can we work with it to re-engage our energy, to connect with our energy? As with all the others, the first step is recognizing, clearly we have to become mindful, yes, sloth and torpor is present. This is a mind state. It's not I, it's not self, it's just a quality, a condition, a visiting defilement. It's just a state that has arisen because of certain conditions. We need to see it for what it is. Knowing that there's an imbalance here, just as with restlessness there's more energy than concentration, with sloth and torpor often there's more concentration than energy. The mind can get very settled and relaxed. Now it's not agitated. When you're sleepy, you're not agitated. It's like kind of collapsing into a sinking mind kind of state, recognizing that, well, the antidote, what can we do to raise the energy? Now, there are many options here. Start noting more things. You know, instead of just the breath, you might start noting a lot of touch points around the body. So, you would be in, out, touching, touching, you know, where the, where the body's touching the floor or a cushion. And just go around the body, point yeah. after point three, four, five, ten different touch points. Because giving the mind more objects helps to arouse the energy. If you're walking, if, you, if you're quite sleepy and you're doing the slow walking, walk faster. Something that's very counterintuitive, but again, actually Sharon was my guru in this. We were doing that first retreat with Upandita in 84, and she was the queen of slow movement. I mean, it was amazing. It, I mean, it could take her an hour to walk from one end of the room to the other. I mean, she was just creeping along. So one time, it was in the evening, and I was quite tired, really feeling sleepy, and doing walking meditation in the dining room. And right next to me, Sharon, she wasn't next to me for long, because <laughs> but in those few minutes that she was... So she was just moving so slowly. And I, feeling sleepy, thought, you know, maybe fast movement would help, but it didn't. So then it just it just you know, I had the inspiration, well, you know, she's moving that slowly. What would it be like to move that slowly when I'm sleepy, when I'm tired? And so I brought it back down. I just started moving as slowly as I could move and still be moving. You know. Actually just as a little aside. There's a, there's a little exercise that the uh, French mime uh, Marcel Marceau does where he goes from standing to sitting and you never see him move. Right? Because the increments of movement are so small. 
Well, that was kind of my inspiration when I was sharing. I just... Right to the edge of how slow I could go and still move. It was amazing. Within two steps, I was completely wide awake. Because it took so much attentiveness. It just aroused the interest and the investigation. And it was this miracle. The whole cloud of drowsiness and sleepiness disappeared. So we want to play and experiment in many different ways. If you're sitting and you try different things and you're still sleepy, open the eyes. Stand up. Although an extreme case of sloth and topo, we were just in Texas uh, we were doing some yoga and we were staying at the house of a guy who has the uh, unique distinction of having fallen asleep doing a headstand. (laughs) 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 Which was quite beyond my imagination. (laughs) So standing up upright, it usually helps, but it might not. There's another little subtlety about working with sleepiness in practice. And I learned this when I was practicing with you know, a very wonderful teacher, Deepama, this woman from Calcutta, who you know, we've written about and talked about a lot, a very extraordinary yogi. And she was super attainment in terms of stages of enlightenment and powers of mind, and very simple. And she was just this very simple Bengali woman, filled with love this incredibly strong and accomplished mind. Um, so she was visiting us one year. And she was a great inspiration to all of us. So one time being on retreat with her, she suggested to me that I only sleep three hours a night and I don't lie down during the day. Well, that was a big stretch. Um, there are some people who have a natural ability to sleep two hours a night and feel great but I'm not one of them. And so this was definitely a push. But she put one little addendum onto this instruction, and I felt inspired to do it just out of my love and respect for her. So there was a real willingness. Okay, she she said to do this. I'm going to really try. But her one addendum, she said, only sleep three hours, don't lie down during the day, but if you fall asleep when you're sitting, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) well that proved to be a very important little thing because when I was sitting I got very tired I was really sleeping now my usual mode when I would feel sleepy or dull would be to really struggle with it because in the context of the meditation retreat it's really an undesirable unpleasant experience you know when you're nodding all the time you want to be alert and awake and so the tendency in my mind, and I think it's not uncommon, is just to get into this struggle with sleepiness. Well, because of her instruction, and she said, well, if you fall asleep, you know, when you're sitting there for mind, at one point I just relaxed behind the sleep. Okay, sleep if I fall asleep, that's fine. And an amazing thing happened. When I stopped struggling and just made the space for that state to be there, I did kind of go into a a kind of half-sleep state for a very few minutes. 
And then I came out of it and my mind again was totally alert, totally awake. And it was just this lesson of how I had actually been exhausting myself in the struggle with sleepiness. So there are lots of sides. You know, sometimes you really want to have that warrior-like mode. And sometimes it's to completely soften. All of this is part of the experimentation that each one of us has to make with these different hindrances. We need to see how to work for ourselves. We'll never make it to desire. (laughs) 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 One last remedy for sleepiness. It was mentioned there was this very fierce Zen master, Korean Zen master, who came one time to Barrett. His name was Kusan Sansanin. And he was of the old school. And the story told about him in his practice when he was dealing with sleepiness that he tied a knife under his chin. (laughs) (laughs) And he stayed awake. (laughs) So for those of you who are feeling (laughs) heroic, start with a butter knife. (laughs) Okay, there's the hindrance of doubt, which just keeps us lost in perplexity and indecision. There's restlessness and worry and agitation, which uh, keeps us from being concentrated and settled. There's sleepiness and dullness, sloth and torpor, which actually keeps us from connecting with our own energy. These are different hindrances of mind that obscure our natural understanding of the nature of mind. The fourth of the hindrances is a big one, and that is uh, the mental quality of aversion. Now we experience aversion in a multitude of ways, and sometimes we experience it in ways that we might not even recognize as aversion. It's how pervasive it is. Some of the obvious ways we experience aversion as anger, or fear, or irritation, or boredom, or sorrow, or grief, are all forms of aversion. Guilt, the judging mind, the condemning mind. Now all these moods and mind states that we can go through so often in the course of the day all are manifestations of this root, this root state. Aversion is that quality of mind that doesn't like the object, and it arises conditioned by the unpleasantness of an experience. When we experience something as being unpleasant, whether it's something unpleasant in our minds, in our bodies, in our environment, in the world, when we experience something as being unpleasant, it very often conditions aversion in one of these forms. <coughs> it's something we don't like and we want to get rid of. It's either because we're not getting what we want, and so we feel aversion of one kind or another, or we are getting something that we don't want, and so we fight with it. We feel aversion. 
it's very easy to observe the functioning of this hindrance in meditation and in our lives in response to physical pain. You know, when we're feeling pain, what's the first response to it? There's a contraction, there's a resistance, there's a wanting to get rid of it, there's a dislike of it. We get impatient. And because of that aversion, we start engaging in a range of quite useless and unskillful strategies for dealing with it. As a few examples, and, and probably if we went around the room, we'd have 70 different strategies, but a few of the more common ones, very often when there's strong, painful sensation in the body, we can start drowning in self-pity. You know, just the poor me syndrome. You know, I'm in pain, why does it have to be me? Why can't I be have the body of light or whatever? And so we just kind of swirl around in self-pity. Sometimes, and quite commonly actually, especially in the face of strong pain, uh, fear arises. We just get afraid of feeling them, so we pull back, we contract. Of course, the contraction in the face of pain only creates even more tension. It's not a useful strategy, and yet it's deeply habituated. Sometimes we get a little more clever. You know, we're not lost in self-pity, perhaps, and maybe not so much fear. This is kind of a, a yogi solution. We start bargaining with it. I'll watch you if you go away. <laughs> so it's like we're co-opting mindfulness. We think we're being mindful, but that's not mindfulness. That's really just another subtle kind of aversion. We want to get rid of it. It's possible with the physical pain, as we talked about you know, in the morning instructions, to disengage from these unproductive strategies and to learn how to simply settle back and relax behind the pain. It's okay to feel the pain. We can actually make our minds quite spacious, quite open, non-reactive, but it takes practice because pain is an edge for most of us. And so we need to practice that move of settling, of relaxing, of opening. It's unpleasant feeling. It's okay. Just let me feel it. Another place that conditions aversion are unpleasant things arising in our mind. And we can have memories come up of unpleasant experiences. And we're just sitting, minding our own business, watching our breath, and all of a sudden, you know, we start reliving something in our minds. And I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but sometimes it doesn't take very long and we can get furious just thinking you know, of something that happened in the past. Manindra had a great line about this, which you'll have to make the, the little jump. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. 
The thought of that situation is not the situation. It's just a thought. You're not in the situation. You're just sitting here on your cushion. And yet the thought comes, and because we don't see it as just a thought, we get ensnared by the content, by the unpleasant content, and the unpleasantness then conditions this whole emotional response of aversion, you know, anger, annoyance, whatever it may be. Even more astounding than that is that we can be sitting here and imagining something that might happen in the future and get angry about it. (laughs) It's a good trick. (laughs) Mark Twain had a wonderful, incisive remark about this. He said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. (laughs) I mean, there's real meditative wisdom there. So pay attention to that, you know, of just how anger or aversion of one kind, fear, annoyance, impatience, whatever whatever the particular form is, can arise out of imagined realities because we're not being mindful, we're not paying attention to the fact that that's what they are. There's one little story which gave birth to a wonderful mental note, which really, if you engage with this story and with this note, it will probably eliminate 75% of your suffering. So this is worth listening to. <laughs> there was this, this is Zen story, there was this guy, you know, kind of hermit monk, who lived off in a cave someplace, and he was also an artist. And so he spent his time painting a tiger on the wall of the cave. You know, and he spent years painting this tiger, and he was so meticulous and such a fine artist that when he was finished, he looked at it and got frightened. Okay, so the note that came out of this story is painted tiger. As all of these stories are arising in your mind, things about the past, things about the future, and you feel yourself getting reactive to them, that anger is arising, fear is arising, aversion is arising. If you can see it clearly enough and simply make the note, painted tiger. That's all it is. It's just a thought in the mind. It's tremendously liberating. We save ourselves a lot of anguish. And it's not so easy to do because these thoughts are very seductive. And that's why we need to practice. You know, meditation practice is called practice for a reason. It's actually practicing the quality of mindfulness, of attentiveness, so that when these things arise, we have this inner development that allows us to recognize it. So we don't simply get lost again and again and again endlessly in useless suffering. I mean, sometimes, you know, as we ourselves go through this suffering and have gone through it, can can understand a lot the compassion of the Buddha. You know, somebody who had awakened and just seeing people who are wanting to be happy, but just going around and engaging in mind body habits that create more and more suffering. And so just his compassion saying, you know, 
You don't need to do that. There's actually a way to come out of it. And it's through the power of mindfulness, of awareness. There's so much to talk about aversion. aspect of aversion uh, which would be very helpful to see clearly because again it's the source of a lot of suffering in our lives has to do uh, with the form it takes of guilt you know at different times in our lives guilt can become a very powerful and debilitating force and the reason it's so powerful is that we believe it you know, it's like guilt is saying we did something maybe not so good, did something unskillful, harmful, and then when we become aware of that, we feel guilty about it. And it's reinforced by the understanding, yeah, I really did do that, and it really was bad, and I'm really a bad person for having done it. Well, at one point I was real, I was struggling with guilt about something, and I was on retreat, and it was just like this demon in my mind. It was and it's a horrible feeling. But at a certain point, and, and I, this is a quality that's very helpful in, in practice, you know, we, where we just start taking interest in our suffering. Okay, what is going on here? How is my mind so bound up in this suffering? So I really started looking very carefully at guilt. And I saw that guilt as a mind state of aversion was really an ego trick of the mind. Because what guilt is doing, it's reinforcing the sense of self, the sense of I, I'm so bad. Mm. And all it's doing is strengthening the ego in a negative judgment way. And so I found another label that was really helpful, or a technique. When I saw that guilt was a trick of Mara, just to strengthen the sense of ego, was this wagging the finger at Mara. You know, because sometimes in the Buddhist text there's the phrase that the Buddha utters, Mara, I see you. And as soon as the Buddha says that, Mara disappears. And I found that a very, as soon as I saw that guilt was simply an ego trick, oh, I see you. The whole thing disappeared. And what replaced it was the skillful alternative which was a feeling of genuine remorse. It was the recognition, yes, I did something that was not good. And it's important that we see that and only take responsibility for it. And we can feel remorse about it. But in remorse, there's also an acceptance, a quality of forgiveness. We don't get stuck. We're not contracting into a negative uh, self-image. This is just another aspect of aversion that's very helpful to see clearly. Okay, there's many more examples of aversion. What to do when it comes in different ways. We need to be mindful when it arises. Just as with all the others, we really need to see the aversion in the moment of it arising, recognize it. 
and to see if we can be with the aversion, the anger, the hatred, the fear, the boredom, the guilt, the sorrow, whatever, whatever flavor it has, if we can be with it in a non-judgmental way. Yes, this is what's here. Can we simply be accepting of it? Thich Nhat Hanh has a very nice image that he uses to dissolve the anger, to dissolve the aversion within us. Within us, He likens it to the sun shining on a flower. And you know, slowly the heat, the warmth of the sun, softens in some way the flower and the petals open up. But Thich Nhat Hanh talks of how we need to shine the sun of awareness and loving-kindness onto the anger itself. Because it's a state of suffering. We can have compassion for that suffering. You know, so we, we hold it in an attitude of awareness, we hold it in an attitude of love, which doesn't mean justifying or condoning, it's just that softening quality of acceptance. And we find that the anger starts to dissipate. Anger is extremely seductive, very easy to get caught up in it, and it's very destructive. The Buddha characterized it as, you know, as he always does, in kind of this amazingly incisive and concise and, and apt way. This is how he described anger. Anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. You know, and it just really captures it. It is a poison source because it's the motive of, of doing harm. You know, it's striking out against. And that fevered climax where we're, we're tremendously energized by it. And the feeling of murderously sweet that we're justified in feeling this. And it's for all these reasons that it's so seductive for us. And very often people feel, well, if I give up this anger, this power, I'm going to lose some power in the world to actually affect change in things that need changing. And so often there's a reluctance that people feel, well, I don't want to give it up because it's helpful in some way. Well, that's a short-sighted view, I think. It does have that power, and it can affect change, but it also has harmful consequences. There is a greater source of power for us. And it's very helpful to connect with it because it's completely non-destructive. And that is the force, the power of compassion for the ignorance which causes harmful actions. person, there are many people who really embody this and the the tremendous inspirations um, on the planet. Somebody like the Dalai Lama, in the face of huge suffering on the Tibetan people, and he's hearing story after story after story of, of the most horrendous suffering, doesn't respond with anger. 
responds with compassion for the ignorance that's that's motivating it. And it doesn't mean not acting, but it's acting from a different place, from a different motive. You know, or Martin Luther King, in the face of huge amount of violence and hatred, responding with love and healing. This is not easy to do. This is a great accomplishment. But we can begin that practice right in our sitting here by learning how to be mindful of anger, of aversion as it arises in all its forms. Learning how to disentangle, disidentify, so we let it go, so the compassion actually can manifest. Doubt, restlessness, sloth and torpor, aversion. We'll hit desire next time. (laughs) These are the hindrances that were singled out as really obscuring the natural radiance and purity of mind. So we need to work with them, we need to understand them. They they provide the juice of our practice as they arise, really work in some of the ways suggested or in your own ways of coming to free the mind from their grip. It's not a question of struggle. It's a question of clear seeing. Krishnamurti expressed this very well. He said, it's the truth which liberates, not your efforts to be free. And that's what we're practicing. We're practicing seeing what's true, seeing the true nature of these states, the characteristics of them, how we get caught, how we can disentangle. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.